So he ran a camera all the way down, and what he discovered was a 200-year-old septic tank underneath my garden bed where all my squash is. So basically what the city did when they went from septic to city plumbing was that instead of repiping between the house and the main sewer line, they um, piped it into the septic tank. I assume thinking like, oh, well, when the tank fills up, it'll all flow into the main line. That's not true. When the tank filled up, no, it flew everywhere. Just yeah. filled up. And it just fills up. So um, basically, it's like a city problem. Like, they did this. And, like, potentially it's like a health code issue. Like, there's yeah. all these things with it. So, but, I mean, the septic tank is really cool because it's, like, underground and it's, like, all brick because it's so old. So it looks like a cave filled with shit, but it's still, like, really a cool little cave down there. That's cool. I wonder if there's I mean, any bodies in maybe. there. Maybe. Probably. Probably. I know. Knowing right? your That's luck, the next yeah. thing. Like, hey, actually, our house is on top of an Indian burial ground, and um, there's going to be a pit, <laughs> a bunch of bodies, and we're all going to go swimming. Um, it's going to be great. So, yeah, basically, like, we can repipe the whole house and have that taken out, I guess. Um, or in, like, the shorter run, the plumber can run a line, like, over top of the septic tank and then mm-hmm. like it'll just be a tank that just lives under my squash i guess poop squash poop squash he did make the joke that that's probably why my plants were doing so well i mean it is and they are so yeah so it's the circle of life really but <laughs> i was literally about to say yeah circle yeah. of life Aww. So that solves the mystery. I think that's a good note to yes, start our Welcome episode on. Friends. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to this little snippet of uh, Tommy's glamorous lifestyle. You know, circle. Of, you know, I was I was musing today because uh, we have been canning yeah. fiends lately because I am getting like three pounds of tomatoes. Me too. It's a crazy. Week. Like, it's ridiculous. So we're, like, canning, canning, canning. And right before this, I was trying to can some more today. And I was, like, you know, going through my tomatoes and plucking them and doing whatever. And my herbs for my sauces. And then putting, like, all the little stuff, like, back into my little, like, Mm. compost jar that's going to go back in the compost. I'm, like, aw. (laughs) Circle of life. I grew you from seeds. And now you're going back into the dirt. And then I will grow you again. I love that. (sighs) I mean, I don't get to use my own poop, but... No, I mean, that's... You got to get on my level, man. Get on yeah. my level. All right. <laughs> if I insist. <laughs> <laughs> and I do. <laughs> and I yeah. do. No, I'm in the same situation. <sighs> I've got, like, a crazy amount of tomatoes. Like, it's insane. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. Our cucumbers are like 18 to 24 inches right now. They're fucking. They're beautiful. Yeah. But I had to throw one away just because I've been stupid Mm. busy this week. And I never got to like can it or use it for anything. So I'm like, well, I picked it it up. just like fell up. You know, like you can't. It's just not possible to keep them all, you know. It's just not really possible. It sucks. But it's not possible. I've got a couple. My cucumbers, like, it's weird. I've never had cucumbers that when kept on the vine for even, like, a day too long, they turn yellow. 
Yeah. Oh, so that's I don't weird. know like what this strange variety is, but they're like really fat and spiky. And like they still taste good when they're a little bit yellow. It's just kind of strange. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Our cucumbers are dying off because like I, I hadn't planned on the cucumbers because mm. they were a gift. So I planted them behind the tomatoes and the poblanos. And now both of those plants have just gotten so big. They're completely blocking any sunlight from the Mm. cucumbers. And now the cucumbers. And tomatoes and peppers are always my priority anyway. Like, I go through a lot more of those than I would a cucumber. Yeah. Also, my poblanos are like three and a half feet tall. And I have never had peppers are kicking ass this this year. Mine aren't, but that's okay. (sighs) Yeah. Mmm. Anyway, we probably should get into some kind of story or something because I'm also like mid-tornado yeah. watch. I think it was downgraded to a watch right now. That means it's probably going to be here in about an hour, so yeah, probably. Probably. we should get started. <laughs> I'll send my tomatoes to you, or our tornado yeah. to you. Can you like you. toss a tomato into it, and then when it comes by my house, it'll just drop it off like bloop in the window? It'll be like a tomato That's soup. Fine. tomato soup. If it's chunky. It'll be all pureed. And, yeah. Well, I will be sending my tornadoes down to you. I don't think they will quite make it to Evansville, Indiana, where we're going uh, today. No, that's a long trip. Yeah, that's a long trip. I love this area that we're going to today, by the mm, way. Yeah. It is. So Evansville, Indiana is like right on the border in like southern Indiana, right by Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So if you talk about like places that don't really feel like they're in the Midwest, it does not feel Midwestern. It is very foothillsy. It's very southern. Kentuckiana. It, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. When I lived, um, like, in high school and the summers that I went back during college, back to Dayton and Cincinnati, I would take a lot of drive and thinks, a lot mm. of think and drives in this area. Oh, you had to with the stuff you had going on down there. I did. I had a lot. I had a lot of thinking and driving to do around that mm-hmm. time in my life. Yes. And this was a gorgeous place to do it. It's all hills and turny, curvy roads and pretty. Mm, beautiful. So get that in your mind for where we're going today. Yeah, I can see it. I can see it. I haven't driven through that in a few years, but I remember it like it was yesterday. Like it was yesterday. It was the last time I was pregnant. I want to give some attention to our sources, though. Yes. So we always like to give attention to sources and I don't have any like specific ones to do. There are a bunch of like little podcasts or YouTubes or whatnot here and there. But what was incredibly useful for this particular episode was newspapers.com. Oh my gosh, I love newspapers.com. And I feel like if we ever get a sponsorship, we should get a sponsorship from newspapers.com. I honestly, like of all of my subscriptions that I have, of which there are way too many that I keep Mm -hmm. getting surprise charged for, newspapers.com is probably the most useful that I have. And it's only $5 a month. Like, it's awesome. I don't pay for it. I just use my mom's. Mm. But... Even better. (laughs) But it is literally the best because... Especially in older cases that have a lot of, like, myth Mm -hmm. exaggeration around them. Yep. Going back to the original reporting is wonderful. And also... And crucial to cut through the fat. Crucial. Also, I love reading old-timey headlines. Oh, my God, Because, like, the 40s and the 50s used so many exclamation marks. And they were so graphic, and they did not mince any words ever. No. Ever. 
And some of that reporting and some of those headlines are going to be kind of important today in this case. Going back to Evansville, Indiana, which just for in fact, it's actually south of Louisville, Kentucky. It is by a little hair. We're jumping back to the big city of Evansville, Indiana, back mm-hmm. to 1954. Ooh, I like it. And everything was popping. I love cases in the 50s. I don't we know. haven't really gone to the 50s much. That's exciting. I know. I'm trying to think. Gein was kind of in the 50s. Yeah. yeah. Getting there. But it was like, it was so rural. Now we're in like a 50s city. A 50s town. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. It was kind of a big city, but if we think big city population-wise, it's more of like a decent-sized suburb. Moving to Chicago has changed you. Really? Yeah, you're (laughs) such a city elitist now. Like, it's not a real city if it's blue. Well, I'm talking about 1954, like the structure of Evansville, Indiana in 1954. Okay. Don't Just don't forget the girl from Beaver Creek, okay? I could never forget the girl from Beaver Creek, and trust me, the fuck I have tried. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Evansville was a very like family little kind of town to live. Lots of little shops and fun places where kind of like on the outskirts of town, there was like peppers of factories and things like that, where most Mm. people would drive out of the city to work, drive back in to live. So lots of local shop fronts and small family owned stores and things like that. This is what I miss about the 50s. Yeah. Not so what much you like miss. The segregation and and the other stuff, but you Here's know. the things I miss about like 40 years before I was born. <sighs> 30 years. Thank you very much. Okay. Anyway. So one of those little small-owned shops, family-owned shops was called Bellmead Liquors. It was a small little shop owned by Mary Holland, her husband AC Doc Holland and Doc's father. Mm. The three of them took took turns running the shop. And Doc also, I think his really his main job was as an assistant yard master at the Louisville-Nashville Railroad. Oh, cool. And then kind of on the side, helped run the shop. Mm. But Mary Holland typically ran the second shift. We're going to start our story on December 2nd, 1954. Okay. Mary starts her shift at the liquor store at 5.30 p.m., taking over for her father-in-law. And it was the plan for her was to work the closing shift, which usually closed probably a little after midnight. Mm. And then she would kind of like wrap everything up. Doc would finish his shift at the rail yard and then head to the store to help Mary kind of clean up, do inventory, bills, all of that kind of stuff for the night. And that was Doc's plan for that evening. However, when he got to the store, he immediately got the feeling that something wasn't right. Mm. he opens the door to the store first of all it wasn't locked which was already kind of something that was a little odd it should have been locked by the time he got there yeah as he comes in on the checkout counter he sees a bottle of calvert's whiskey open on the counter and nearby on the floor he sees mary's purse laying with everything kind of strewn about on the floor and the wallet missing oh that's a bad start bad way to start your evening right Mm mm-hmm So Doc starts yelling and hollering, trying to get Mary's attention. He starts kind of frantically searching the store, aisle to aisle, finding nothing and no one. Until he finally gets to the back of the store near the bathroom. The light is off in the bathroom, and there's not much light near that corner of the store. So he slowly kind of walks back there, opens the door to the bathroom, 
and turns the light on and it takes him a moment to kind of realize exactly what he's looking at Mm. because immediately in the bathroom he sees nothing until he looks behind the toilet and stuffed in the back of the toilet he sees mary's body laying in the corner hands tied behind her back and killed by a single gunshot wound to her head oh god that is really graphic yeah He obviously immediately calls the police. They discover about $250 missing from the store. Upon investigation of Mary's body, they discover that she had been killed by a thirty-eight caliber weapon with a single gunshot wound, but they have little other evidence to go on in the Mm. search for the killer. So $250, yes, it's 1954, but damn. What is that now? Like About $2,500. Jeez. Damn. And people have killed for less, but it's petty. It's petty. Yeah. As the police are interviewing Doc, he tells them, he was like, listen, our family, ever since we opened the store, has agreed in the event of a robbery, we give them the register. We don't even fight it. Mm-hmm. Nothing in that register is worth a life. There was no reason for this to happen. Mary That's would not have put up way. a fight. Exactly. I'm sure store owners have a lot of different feelings about this, but. Yeah. Nothing in that register is worth somebody's life. Mm-hmm. So Doc is telling them right off, my wife was killed in cold blood. Mm. There is no reason for this. Okay. Um, on the autopsy of Mary, they would find out that she had actually been three months pregnant. Oh, wow. That is so sad. Yeah. Ugh. I don't yeah. think that Doc knew at the time. Oh, no. Poor Doc. Ugh. And if nobody knew, then there's not going to be a feticide charge. No. So there's not going to be, like, justice for that little life. No. That's so awful. So the family and the police are obviously, like, struggling to make sense of the crime. The Evansville Police Department is like, yes, we're going to look into it. We're going to search this. But at that time, they're like, this is a robbery gone wrong. Somebody robbed a liquor store, and it's tragic. Mm -hmm. But to them, there wasn't much else to go on. Right. They look for a perp. Police were not ready for what is about to happen over the series of the next few months. Interesting. Okay. So that was on December 2nd, 1954. Three weeks later, December 23rd, 1954, two-time Army veteran Wesley Kerr goes to work at the Standard Service gas station. Kerr had served in World War II as a paratrooper at the mm. Battle of the Bulge. Oh, wow. Yeah. He survived despite a lot of damage. Mm. Man went through a lot. And he was then asked to reenlist for the Korean War. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. He fought in the Korean War. He served in two huge wars. Yeah. After coming back from his, his first tour of duty in the Korean War, mm-hmm. the... Army tried to get him back. They wanted to send him out into theater again because mm. they're, because he had expertise in demolition, I guess. Hmm. But he declined. At this point, he had the ability to say, like, no, I'm going to decline an additional tour of duty. Good for him. Because he had served so many years. Yeah, good for him. So after that tour of duty in the Korean War, he declined. He left the Army. So he married his wife, Peggy. They had three children. Their youngest born just in September of 1954. Aww. He had actually just started working at the service station in Evansville, Indiana. He had 
only really recently left the army, like within the last year. So he was just kind of spending that time looking for a steady job to support his family. So he had only been at this job for a couple of months. Mm. He also worked the late shift overnight. Ouch, that's a long night. Right around midnight, he took his break and he called his wife, Peggy. And he was actually really excited. This is so cute. He was really excited to call Peggy because they were going to finalize their plans for Christmas. They were traveling to Tennessee to visit Kerr's family. Aww. And he was excited to tell her that his bosses had gifted him a turkey. Oh, like Christmas turkey. That's awesome. For, for his excellent customer service. Aww. And so he was like, hey, we're going to go down to Tennessee, right? Let's finalize the plans, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, I got this huge turkey. Oh, let's cook it up. Let's do it. Yeah. Oh, that's so sweet. So sweet. Unfortunately, that was the last his wife had heard from him. Mm. We know that sometime between 1.30 and 1.45 a.m. on December 23rd, a man wielding a gun enters the gas station. The man holds Kerr up at gunpoint ties Kerr's hands behind his back and walks him to the back bathroom hmm. where he's shot in the forehead in the same manner as Mary Holland. The man takes the gun, takes the cash register and walks away with just a few dollars from the register and with Kerr's wallet. Jeez. I think it was estimated. I saw somewhere that he didn't get away with more than $20. Wow. How do we come upon such a tight timeline for that? Receipts. Ah, okay. That's great. I'm glad that we have that. Right around 1.45, between 1.45 and 2 a.m., a patron comes into the store and notices that things are disheveled and there's no one at the store. Ah, okay. So last receipt at uh, 11.30. Okay. Got at 1.30. Or 1.30, yeah. Yeah. So that patron calls the police noticing that things are kind of out of place. Mm-hmm. The police arrive, they investigate the scene, they go into the bathroom to see Kerr in the same manner, kind of shoved back behind the toilet, killed with a single thirty-eight caliber shot mm. to the forehead. So awful. It's just so awful. And it's, it's just so cold, like, because then you have, there's like this like miniature attempt to conceal, like I'm going to stuff this person behind a toilet mm-hmm. and that might like buy me some time to get wherever I'm getting. You know? And it's it's like literally just enough time for him to get away from the scene, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That person's not going to be not found there. He doesn't right. even go so far as to lock the doors behind him. Yeah. It just like it might buy him like five minutes of like searching around. Mm-hmm. Time for somebody to make their way all the way to the back. Think to get into the bathroom. Turn on the light, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because like we'll talk more about kind of our perpetrator here, but it's always listed as his motivator was robbery, mm. but he never gets away with a ton of money. Mm. Like $2,500, sure, that's a good chunk of money, or like the 250 mm-hmm. that it was at the time, but this is cold-blooded. Yeah, I mean, I can see that both ways. Like, for some people, that is a lot of money, you know? Yeah, but... And that could be like a life-changing amount of money for some people. But again, like with Mary Holland... I don't believe that she would have put up a fight for it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So then you wonder, like, okay, did he know how much he was getting before? Mm-hmm. Did he not find that out until after he was done? Because that kind of changes that interpretation, too, you know? What the motivator is? Yeah. We'll talk about it. Okay. Because these crimes are going to change a little bit. Oh, they are. They are. 
Hmm. So obviously with those two cases, the way the bodies are found, the robbery, all of that, police are quick to make the connection, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Police pick up on it. The media pick up on the cases. The media jumps on this. It is everywhere. It's Mm. there's a killer. There's a killer. There's a killer on our streets. Don't walk home alone. Don't be alone. Don't be at work alone. And for a while, at least, that media coverage seemed to scare off the killer. Oh, okay. About three months pass, and there are no more attacks. Hmm. There's nothing. Like, everything kind of goes back to its typical quiet Evansville way, right? Yeah, yeah. Until March 21st of 1955. Mm. That is a break. Interesting. You have two attacks in pretty quick succession within three Mm -hmm. weeks of each other and then three months of nothing interesting i i tend to think if there was at least another robbery or attempted robbery there would be some kind of news coverage right you'd think yeah so march 21st 1955 we are at the home of wilhelmina and john sailor by the way i love the name wilhelmina my gosh me too throwing that out there yeah (laughs) Wilhelmina and John and their seven-year-old son. We're just a few miles north of Evansville now in Mount Vernon, Indiana. Mm-hmm. John worked nearby the home, and he would always kind of come home for his lunch and then go back to work. And that's kind of was their typical routine. That's what they did on March 21st. John came home for lunch. He left shortly after 1 p.m. to finish his shift while Wilhelmina returned to do kind of housework and activities for the day. Kind of typical mundane stuff. Mm-hmm. About an hour later, 2 p.m., a neighbor sees someone drive up the home's driveway in a dark, beat-up car with a dent in the front bumper. Hmm. Neighbor's like, huh, that's weird. But then also doesn't think much of it because it's like, okay, so somebody just drove up into their house. Could be anybody. Right. And they see a man knock on the sailor's door. They didn't pay too much attention of it. They didn't even see if the man had left or anything else. Sometime around 3 p.m., Wilhelmina's seven-year-old son comes home from school to find his mother in the living room, face down, hands tied behind her back, with a gunshot wound to her head. Jesus. Lucky or unlucky, good timing or bad timing, it's only about five more minutes before John comes home and he Mm. sees the scene as well. Yeah. He tries to kind of rush their son out of the house and get him out before calling the police. Once again, upon kind of actually searching the scene, the police find Wilhelmina's purse strewn about, empty, all of the cash missing. Mm. John told the police in the interview that Wilhelmina never carried much money or much cash at all. And it's not like they didn't have much cash or anything at the home. Yeah. And nothing expensive was missing. It was just the couple of dollars in Wilhelmina's purse. So, you know, in the 50s, like, you're not going to get, like, great information via Mm -hmm. this type of examination. But were there ever any uh, thoughts or notes that indicated that either of the women killed endured any kind of sexual assault? In any of the reporting, there was no indication that there was any sexual assault. Okay. In none of the attacks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I figured you would ask that. How much for it? There was, yeah. Am I so predictable? You're so predictable. Well, because I wondered that too. And I was like, okay, there has to be some angle here. What's going on? 
Yeah, that's interesting. I'm just trying to think about motivations that wouldn't be just the money. only robbery. Yeah, only the money. Yeah. I start to wonder about the money being kind of like a cover up for more of a thrill kill. Like, oh, let me grab this cash register so that that kind of diverts some attention and makes them think that they're that's what I'm for, here for. They're looking for a robber or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. 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 Hold on to that. Okay. Hold on to it. Okie dokie. Now, in this case, unlike the first two, the police were kind of hesitant to connect it to the other ones. Mm. Because well, it's very different. Exactly. The manner of death was similar and there was it was still a single gunshot wound with a 38 caliber which Mm. ended up kind of being what connected the two but this was in a private home it wasn't a business yeah and Wilhelmina was found just strewn in her living room and it was outside of town too exactly so they're like maybe yes no but it's really hard to ignore like the entire manner of death the Mm -hmm. binding and the single gunshot wound yeah This was the one that really put the city completely on alert. Mm. The newspaper reports at the time would say that, like, the stores were running out of guns. They were running out of bullets. They were running out of locks to sell. Oh, my. People were scared. People were really scared. People were terrified. Everybody was in home protection mode. Mm. Workers were no longer wanting to be alone at night on night shifts. Well, yeah storekeepers bartenders and all of that would go so far as like to ask patrons to stay with them Mm. until like they would like hey just stay here count receipts like walk home with me like i just i can't be alone yeah because so far he's only ever killed single people that are alone interesting but only until the go go ahead oh well only until the okay okay only until the only until the next week gotcha okay So March 28th, we're going to jump across the Ohio River here. Oh, yeah. Okay. We're going to jump across the river to Geneva, Kentucky. Mm. Now, we're jumping across the river and we're going to be in another state. Again, you can cross the river four or five times within 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And crossing a state line. When you live by a state line, crossing the state line is not like a big deal. Like I live five minutes from the Michigan border. I go to Michigan all the time, probably Mm -hmm. like three four times a week easily yeah so we're crossing into geneva kentucky and it's a little bit more of a rural area there's a lot more farmland it's hillier greener and we're jumping over to the farm of gobel duncan cool name right it is a 150 acre farm wow big we're kind of getting further and further out Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because though there were two attacks in Evansville proper, and then we went north to Mount Vernon, and now we're going south mm. to Geneva. That's interesting too. We're zigzagging. Mm-hmm. That's what I was. I was just pulling up a map right now because I just wanted to understand, <laughs> like where yeah. I am. Yeah, it's not. I'd say probably none of it is more than a thirty-minute drive, but we're definitely mm. zigzagging. Yeah, and you know what's now a thirty-minute drive. May have then been more like 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah. Those are some hilly roads out there. Mm-hmm. So the Duncan family were a really close family. Actually, Goebel's son, Raymond, and his wife, Mary Alice, lived less than a mile from the farm. And actually, the two families shared acreage, mm. kind of working the farm together. Now, on March 28th, 
Mary Alice, who is still in the hospital because they had just had their first child, a son. Oh. So Raymond and Mary just had their first son. Mary was resting in the hospital. And Raymond had gone to the Goebbels farm to kind of just pick up the family and drive them to the hospital to go meet the new babe. Aww. At the Goebbels house was Goebel and Mamie, Goebel's wife, so Raymond's mother, his sister-in-law Elizabeth, and her two-year-old daughter, Shirley Fay. The four of them were all planning to meet together at the house. Mm, okay. Raymond and Goebel were at the farm, and the two women were out running errands, and I like to assume they were buying gifts for the new mom. Yeah, I would think so. So while Raymond and Goebel are kind of gathering stuff together at the house, a man drives up to the house in a beat-up car with a dent in the front bumper. Mm -hmm. The man knocks on the door, and as soon as they open the door, he pulls out a pistol from his waistband. He grabs the men, ties their hands behind their back, and forces them into his car. Oh, that's terrifying. Mm-hmm. He drives the two men into his car four miles down the road and shoots them in the back near a marshy area by the road hmm. and leaves them in the marshy grasses. Okay. The man then drives back up to the Goebbels farm to search it for cash. Hmm. While he's searching the house, a new car drives up, carrying Mamie, Elizabeth, and the toddler, Shirley Faye. Hmm. As the women enter the home, the man hides behind the door. They open the door, pulls a gun on them. Once again, ties their hands behind their back. This time, he has to improvise with a lamp cord. He walks each woman into a separate bedroom and shoots them in the back of the head. Jeez. Now, in an act of kindness, I suppose, he leaves little Shirley Faye alive. Hmm. Well, thank God for that. Yeah. A teenage boy, a few hours later, riding down the road where the men were left, sees the two bodies of Raymond and Goebbels mm. in the muddy marsh and calls the authorities. Officers investigate the scene and quickly send another set of officers to go notify the family. Oh, jeez. The officers first go to Raymond's house about a mile down the road, but obviously nobody's home. Mm-hmm. And so they drive from Raymond's house to the Goebbels farm, where they knock on the door. The door is unlocked and the door pushes right open. Mm. Deputies obviously now are like, eek, not good. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> They enter the home with their guns drawn. They slowly and carefully search the home. They first find Mamie in the bedroom. Shocked, Mamie is still alive. Oh, whoa. Mamie would actually live through the attack. Did she really? And being shot in the head. Wow, that's miraculous. Uh Uh-huh. Now, Mamie would be blind for the rest of her life, and she Mm. lost any memory of the attack. Well... That might be its own mercy, though, for her. Right. So she didn't have any memory. She couldn't provide any information. Police then go into the next room. They find Elizabeth face down in the bed. And they find little Shirley Faye cuddled up next to her. Oh, God. Clutching a stuffed bunny that she had just gotten for her birthday. No, she did not have a stuffed bunny. She had a stuffed bunny. Ugh. That 
poor baby. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Toddlers love stuffed bunnies. Toddlers do love stuffed bunnies. Yep. Shirley Faye tells police when they enter the room, Mommy's sleeping. Police gently kind of pick up Shirley, wrap her in a jacket, and take her to the car. Somebody stays with her while the officers obviously investigate the scene. Mm -hmm. So obviously everybody's kind of panicked and terrified, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not even just the town of Evansville, but now like this entire region. region. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But who's a great clutch player when everybody's panicking? Hmm, psychics? Teenage boys. Oh, yeah, that too. (laughs) Psychics and teenage (laughs) boys, they have a lot in common. Yes, yes, they do. They do. So a couple of teenage boys, Bill and Gary Peerless. And a couple of their friends who I couldn't find the names of, but mostly mm-hmm. of that just talks about the peerless boys. Cute name. With all of the bravado of teenage boys in Kentucky. Teenage <laughs> boys anywhere, let me tell you. As a middle school and high school teacher, let me tell oh, you. Oh, God, they're, I love them. I love them to death. Me too. Me too. <laughs> These boys load up into their family car and just start driving around searching the area. Mm. Now, there's a lot of different versions of this story out there i tend to think that even at the time they weren't taking it that seriously yeah like again it's all bravado and boys egging each other on and let's go Mm -hmm. find the killer man blah 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 yeah some stories say oh they knew what they saw and they were like junior detectives and some Mm. were just like oh no they were just silly drunk boys and I'm sure it's truth is somewhere in the middle. Yeah, it always is. It mm-hmm. always is. It's, it's shifted over time. We're going to let people have whatever story they want to have with this because yep. these boys are actually really, they become heroes. So. Yeah, well, teenage boys are often clutch players in these stories. <laughs> you are right about that. So they're trolling the Indiana, Kentucky Hills. And as they're just driving around trolling, they're like, this guy's not going to terrorize our town. He's not going to, you know, terrorize our families, whatever. Mm. They're egging each other on. They see a man parked on a gravel road. Yeah. They see him stomping through them through some woods. They don't recognize this guy. They're like, uh-uh, he's not from our town. Interesting. They start to head up a hill. And they see this guy actually heading up the hill to the peerless house. Really? Uh-huh. Hmm. That's when the boys start joking with each other and start kind of amping each other up, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So Gary Peerless gets it in his gut that he, again, like, whatever's going through his head, he's like, I need to remember this. Yeah. I need to remember this. So he jumps out of the car and goes and searches this guy's car. Hmm. And ballsy like, right right again ballsy teenage boys <laughs> yeah i love it i love that so much he like goes and he gets a good look at this car and he's like in his head he's like a dark old beat up mm. dent in the front bender ah. like, dent in the front fender God. and he writes down the license plate el351 mm. and he like gets that in his head memorizes it he jumps back in the car and one of the other boys yells at the guy, get out of our town. So ballsy. I know. 
I know. But whatever he said, it was enough to scare this guy mm. who then runs and jumps back in his car and zooms away. Hmm. Sus, right? Yeah, a little bit. A little, little bit. bit. So the boys are kind of, they drive home. They're all like, you know, slapping each other on the back and joking and whatever. Mm -hmm. I, again, I think even at the time they thought this was a joke. Yeah. Although, I don't know, to have the thought to remember the license plate. I mean, that, that kid at least was taking it a little bit more seriously. That kid was definitely taking it a little bit more seriously. Yeah. And a few days later, Gary and Alan are sitting at home, and I don't know if it was over the radio or on the TV, but they hear a news report where the reporter says they're looking for a man in a dark car with a dent in the front fender. Hmm. So the boys go to their parents and like, hey, that's the guy we saw the other day. This is the guy. Like, what Mm. should we do? And the parents are like, uh, call the police. Yeah, what do you think you should do? (laughs) (laughs) So obviously the police at this point, I'm sure that they had gotten tons of tips. Mm -hmm. Like you always do in these cases. It's like a lot of stuff that you can't do anything with. Like, oh, I saw a guy on this corner. Oh, there was a dark blue car over here the other night. But because Gary was smart enough to memorize and write down the license plate, they actually finally had something to go on. Yeah, that's big. So now we're on April 8th, 1954. So not much more time has passed Mm. since the murder at the Goebbels farm. Yeah. Police are able to trace down the license plate to 30-year-old Evansville man, Leslie Irvin. Mm, Okay. They track Leslie down at his job at the Segeco plant. I think that's how you say it. Okay. Go with it. It's a it was a local gas and electric power plant in hmm. Yankeetown, Indiana. Okay. Again, not too far, but just one of the many factories kind of on the outskirts of town. Sure, sure. Now, police waste no time. Like they go to the bosses of this plant and they're like, Hey, we're looking for this guy, Leslie Irvin. The bosses are like, Oh yeah, he's down there on the line. Mm. They just bolt. And tackle him to the ground. Whoa, okay, subtle. (laughs) Very subtle. Immediately tackle him to the ground, cuff him, take him in. When they take him in for his mugshot, he is still covered in grease and soot from the factory. Wow. If you look up his mugshot, it's a little terrifying because it's so dirty. Hmm. Okay. And it also has that, like, 1950s charm to it. Mm. (gasps) (laughs) This sketch of him is my favorite. This sketch is what just got me. (laughs) But there's actually, there's also photos of him, and we'll get into it, but he cleaned up nice. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The mugshot is creepy. The sketch is nightmare fuel. The sketch is nightmare fuel. <laughs> yeah. Interesting, though, that the sketch also has a dirty face, too. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I feel like that was very intentional, because we're mm-hmm. going to get into, I say he cleaned up well not to glamorize him, but because it's important mm. in how this whole thing plays out. Right. Okay. So... On April 15th, uh, Leslie Irvin, so he's arrested on the 8th, 
on the 15th, he is interviewed and reportedly gives a full confession. Mm. Not only of the six murders, but of dozens of, di- of additional burglaries. Hmm. Searches of his home would find all kinds of stolen property, including, crucially, Wesley Kerr's wallet. Oh. That's pretty damning. That's pretty damning. He also, in this reported confession, tells police that the gun that he used to kill Kerr, he threw in a ditch and he tells them where he threw it. Hmm. So the police then go to recover the gun. Where they do go to the ditch, they do recover a gun. Hmm. Now, a look at Leslie Irvin's history reveals a good old local boy, born and raised in Evansville, Indiana. Interviews with people that knew him just described him as calm, polite, friendly, nicest guy you could ever meet. Hmm. Interesting. His history would reveal a series, though, of armed robberies. Mm, okay. He had previously served a sentence of, he was sentenced to 10 to 20 years, and he served nine of it in Indianapolis for armed robbery. Wow, he started really young then, because he was He's, only 30 when he was apprehended. Yep. Hmm. Basically, like, he grew up, moved to Indianapolis, and started committing these armed robberies. Mm. Interesting. So after that apprehension and I keep saying reported confession because he is going to retract it. Ah, okay. And it gets into a problem in the evidentiary hearings. Ah, okay. Lay it on me. So there's a little bit of back and forth between Indiana and Kentucky about who gets to try him first. Sure. But because they had Kerr's wallet, that's the clutch piece of evidence. Mm-hmm. So Indiana's getting the case. That's where they're starting. Reportedly, Kentucky was supposed to be the, like, quote-unquote backup if things didn't go well. Mm. Also, Kentucky, if we think, like, justice is swift in certain states in the Midwest, it was swifter in Kentucky at the time. Yeah, yeah, I could believe that. Now, what is about to play out here is, like, legitimate legal history making, okay? Mm. Yes. Changes the face of how how we conduct trials from here on forward. Yes, 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 yes. I know you're excited about this. I am. I am. So as I've been saying, this case really just took over the fucking news. The entire region of that like tri-state area. So southern Indiana, southern Ohio, northern Kentucky. Mm-hmm. I mean, that entire region was absolutely terrified of this man. Yeah. People buying weapons and locks and planning buddy systems and all of this. You couldn't open the newspaper without reading about this guy. Yeah. And the second he was arrested with that creepy ass sketch, it only got worse. Oh my gosh, right? it's so creepy. <laughs> I just do not like it. <laughs> uh, the media dubbed him very quickly the Mad Dog Killer. Mm. I'm curious as to how they like came up with that name. And it's like, oh, he's just he's, he's just out a, of control. He's, he's out a of mad control. dog. He's a mad dog. Yeah. I won't go into this, but like the guy who took that name actually went on to become a very very famous Chicago Tribune reporter. Hmm. And kind of went on to regret it. Really? Yeah. So Irvin's face was plastered everywhere you could go. A lot of places would use that creepy ass sketch or his booking photo. But other ones would get some of those more kind of like cleaned up handsome-ish photos. 
you know, showing off that like thick, dark hair, dark eyes, good build, good jawline. He became the Bundy before Bundy. Yeah, he's a he's a good looking person. Uh huh. And so much so that very much like Bundy and Manson, women were lining up at jail and at the courthouse, fawning over him. Gross. Don't Don't do do this. It's not cool. Mm Mm-mm. I think Bailey Sarian says it. Get better idols. Yeah. 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 Way to be, Bailey. Yeah. And also, because, like, I went through and I read all of, like, the coverage at the time from newspapers.com, let me tell you about how many exclamation marks were in the stories written about him. (laughs) Mad dog, psychopath, killer, finally taken in, blah, 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 blah. They printed, apparently, portions of his confession. Oh, wow. In the newspapers. Mm. There was so much media coverage that it became next to impossible to sit a jury of people that weren't already biased in this case, that had already just decided that he was guilty. Mm. Irvin's lawyer, Ted Lockyer, advocated for a change of venue, obviously because of this publicity, right? We see that a right. lot. He was granted one change of venue, but he was, it was only changed to the next neighboring county. Oh, well, what good is that going to do? Literally absolutely none. Everybody was getting the same newspapers. Everybody was still hearing the same crimes and the same everything. It was all the same print media. And actually, at a later stat review, like a a statistical review of like who was getting what newspapers and who saw what coverage. Mm -hmm. I love this stuff. That's so interesting. It would show that there was like 90 to 90 percent of the same media coverage in these two counties. Mm. Lockyer petitioned for another change of venue, but it was denied. They would eventually interview 400 jurors just to try to seat a 12-person jury. Wow, that's a lot for that time. Yeah. That's crazy. Over 250 of those were immediately dismissed due to just, like, outright bias. Like, basically, they came and testified and was like, yep, fuck that guy. Yeah, so who's left? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They finally got 12 jurors, but of those 12... Eight of them, so two-thirds, still admitting, still admitted, saying, like, yeah, Irvin's guilty, but I guess I'll hear the evidence. Huh. That's still, like, not good enough. (laughs) (laughs) You and I both know that, but uh, Indiana did not care at the time. Mm. Wow. So when we finally get to trial, let's set a little scene here, okay? So December 1955, Evansville, Indiana. It's cold. It's windy. I'm assuming. Probably. <laughs> probably. Courtroom is packed. Mm. People are traveling far and wide to see the mad dog killer, and they were not disappointed. Mm. Leslie Irvin is walked in in shackles and chains with a strap around his neck resembling a leash. Ooh, wow. And he was kept that way for a good chunk of the trial. Hmm. Like a mad dog. Like a mad dog. The audience is wild. They're cheering and clapping as they walk him in. Like swaths of applause erupt when a judge dismisses an objection by the defense team. Hmm. Now, the judge does quickly tell people you cannot applaud like that. You cannot do it. I was just going to say, did anyone interfere with this? (laughs) It seems like the judge in this case... He he tried, but did not try enough. 
Yeah, I mean, he's probably a local, too, with his own biases, and yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, the biggest thing that happens kind of throughout the trial, in addition to this, like, I don't even know what to call it, shenanigans, like, mm. oh, God, who's that woman on court TV that I fucking hate? <clears throat> Nancy Grace? Is it Nancy oh, Grace? Yeah, you hate Nancy Grace. Yeah. Fucking hate Nancy Grace. Like, this mm-hmm. is Nancy Grace's wet dream, right? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah, totally. So, aside from all of that, I had mentioned his reported confession. That was never formally entered into evidence. Mm. Meaning that discovery, you know, where, like, the same evidence has to be shared between defense mm-hmm. and prosecution, right? Right, right, right. Never happened. What? So his defense team assumed like, oh, well, the prosecution obviously isn't going to use this because it was printed in the local newspapers, right? Hmm. Um, they did. Really? Instead of entering it into formal evidence in the proper way, what the prosecution does is allow detectives to enter it in as part of their testimony. What the heck? That is so interesting. So obviously, once the detectives start saying like, oh, yeah, he confessed and he did this, this and this, the defense immediately objects, right? Sure. Yeah. They're like, no, Duh. that's that's not entered into evidence. You can't mm-hmm. do that. Like at this point, it's just hearsay. So <sighs> they object to it. They say Irvin withdrew that confession, citing that it had been coerced. Mm. Irvin says according to the defense team that police told him if he didn't confess in indiana they're going to send you to kentucky where you're going to get treated worse you're going to get hanged in kentucky Mm. but if you confess here in indiana you might get parole what does the judge say in response to this the judge can't allow this oh judge allows it oh judge judge allows it and this is when like claps cheers hoots hollers everything right and if you have an ego you're eating that up too you know god yeah stuff like this would happen throughout the trial this is frightening right there's a reason why like this is a very historic case Mm -hmm. when i was doing the original research all i could find was like the legalese on this case yeah and i was like no i need to like know the Mm. person and the crime and all of that stuff Oh, the legalese is the fun part, though. Yeah, it is. We haven't had one of these in a while. It's one of the fun parts. Yeah. But throughout all of this, Irvin is cool as a fucking cucumber. Hmm. Does not flinch as they're, like, hurling mad dog and psychopath and saying that he's undeserving of mercy and all of that. Just, like, chill. Wow. Apparently on breaks, he would just, like, approach the reporters and just, like, chat them up about sports and current events and... Weird. Yeah. So the trial is pretty quick. So it starts in December. By January 1955, I have... Are we in 55 or 56 by the time we roll over? You're right. It's 56. Okay. January 56. The hearings are concluded. The jury is set to deliberate. They deliberate for a grand total of 90 minutes. Oh, my gosh. Return a verdict of guilty and a recommendation for the electric chair. Wow. Now, again, Leslie Irvin is a bad person. Yes. Yes. He is a very bad person. And he obviously did this crime. Uh Uh-huh. 
but that's not a fair trial. That's no. crazy. No. And let's see how much this got fucked up because we're not done yet. Okay. So jury comes back, say, guilty, electric Jeez. chair, kill this guy. Even after that, Irvin is chill as fuck. No emotion, nothing. Only after his mom was in the courtroom with him, sitting right behind him. The only time you saw even a flinch out of Irvin was as they read the verdict, his mother collapsed onto Ah. the floor sobbing. And a member of the newspaper swooped in and tried to rush to take a picture as she fell to the ground. Irvin charged the photographer and lunged at him. Police just barely grabbed him in time before he took this uh, photographer to the ground. This whole thing is like so high drama. It sounds like a TV show. Like it really does. I know. I love the 50s. Everything. (laughs) And in that same foul swoop, they drag him off to the jail Hmm. cell. His date with the electric chair was scheduled for June Hmm. 12th of that same year. Now, obviously, immediately after this, Irvin starts working with his team to build his appeals. And one of the questions that he asks is, do I have to be present at all the Mm. appeals hearings? And Lockyer says, no, it's just a lot of courtroom filing and it's a lot of just like bullshit. You don't have to be present for all those hearings. So Irvin says, awesome, thanks. Get started on the appeals for me. Irvin is transferred from his cell in Princeton, Indiana, to a brand new escape-proof jail in Evansville while he's waiting for transfer to Indiana State Prison in Michigan City. He sits in that cell for Mm. nine days, just fiddling around, reading some books, just waiting. With all of that fiddling, he's also fashioning a key. Of course he is. Out of book covers and cardboard and possibly tin foil. I don't know. Hmm. He said it was just book covers and cardboard. I mean, that would be really hard to do without a, at least a little bit of some kind of metal. But that's what I'm like. There had to be something like more sturdy. Like I don't know there. a lot about know. the craft, but I don't know. Maybe they had. Maybe he had access to hardcover books. Mm, it's a pretty sturdy. Yeah, that's true. But uh, a couple days later. The morning of January 22nd, he walks through multiple <gasps> doors, just pieces out of that jail cell. No way. Without a single person noticing. What the hell, man? Yep. Just waltzes right out. That is... How could nobody have seen him? Nobody saw him. He just, like, with all the cockiness in the world, just walked out of the jail. Which is half the battle. Like, look confident. And then maybe, mm-hmm. you know, someone you walk by is going to be like, well, it must be his lucky day. I don't know. Yeah, right? Jeez. By the time that guards even noticed, he was already miles away. Hmm. He would travel over the next 20 days... 2,000 miles to San Francisco, California. How? Did he hitchhike? He hitchhiked. He jumped on trains. He Mm. walked. But before he left in his cell, he left this little note to his lawyer. (laughs) I'm going to read it to you. Because it also got printed in the local press. Please, please tell me. Dear Ted, Ted Lockyer, his Mm. lawyer. Dear Ted, I know this is the wrong thing to do, (laughs) but I just... 
but I just, <laughs> but, I just <laughs> but I can't just got up to Michigan City and wait. Yep. If they ever do give me a new trial, I'll come back and face it. Maybe the jury will believe the truth. Mm. I will appreciate it if you go on with the appeal. That was why I asked you the last time I saw you if I had to be here when you filed for a new <laughs> trial. I know that you and Jim are doing everything you can for me. Jim was his co-defendant. Mm. It's a hard fight, but all three of us know that the police lied and I was convicted before I was even tried. Mm. I haven't given up hope, but it sure is hard. As I said above, when I get a new trial, I'll try again. Thanks for everything you've done for me. Yours very truly, Les. Oh my God. It has like the same rhetoric to it that like a senior boy will try to use to get out of class a little bit early. Like, (laughs) you know, like, you know, I just wanted to let you know that I just... You know, like, didn't really feel like being here, but, you know, I really appreciate everything that you do, and, you know. Yours very truly. Yeah, you're a great teacher. I'm just not, I'm just going to not be here, you know? So, uh. Keep doing what you're doing. Appreciate it. with your day. You're great. Everything is fine. I'm just going to be yeeting myself out of here. Goodbye. (laughs) Yes, he yeeted himself out of the prison. (laughs) That might be the first time I've ever properly, properly used <laughs> Oh, God. Spent a lot of time with teenagers. <laughs> uh, so obviously this lovely letter did nothing for his reputation as a cold-blooded mastermind, mm-hmm. cunning and shrewd and brilliant and all of that. Yours very truly. Plus, he was able to fashion a lock to get out of a new state-of-the-art I'm not going to act like he wasn't clever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can't act like he's not clever. He is smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he used that cleverness and that cunning and that friendliness and that just, like, perfect little tinge of a southern accent that you get in that region where mm-hmm. it's, like, it's not too deep. But it's just there enough, and it's very it's just, cute. It's very cute. Yeah. He used all of that to hitchhike across the country. Hmm. And he made his way all the way to San Francisco by stealing wallets, stealing clothes. At one point, he went by the name Joe Gobbles, which I thought was kind of gross. Oh, that's messed up. Yeah. Gross. He also just used the identities of the people whose wallets he stole. Mm, Gross. He traveled to Las Vegas, then L.A., where apparently he had a sister that lived. Mm. But he worried that if he stayed in Las Vegas too long, or L.A. too long, that he would be found there because they knew that he had a sister there. Mm-hmm. So he went from L.A. to San Francisco. In San Francisco, he found himself at a pawn shop where he tried to pawn a few rings that he had stolen in L.A. This is another just little tinge into his personality that I just. So he's trying to pawn these rings that he stole. Mm -hmm. The pawnbroker is just like asking him a bunch of questions, just moving slow, you know, moseying about through the day. And, uh. Oh, no, I think he was a little suspect, mm. a little suspicious of this guy. I think most pawnbrokers, just by their nature, probably are. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And apparently Irvin was just not here for it, mm. was just annoyed by all of this. And finally, in the middle of this pawn shop trying to sell these fucking broken rings, just yells, don't you know who I am? <laughs> I'm Irvin. I'm wanted for six murders in Indiana. I've been convicted of one of them, and I'm not guilty of any of them. Jesus. 
To which the pawnbroker says, I'm going to call the police. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, good on you. Good on you. Good night. So the police, <laughs> the police come in. And they take him in. They arrest him because his flight, like flyers and pictures of him had been, you know, floating around. He had actually apparently been stopped no fewer than five times while traveling across the country, Hmm. but always managed to talk his way out of it with fake names and fake stories. Yeah. I mean, he's still making his way across the country via illegal channels, like stealing wallets along the way and that kind of stuff. So it's not like Mm -hmm. he's... It's not like he's not leaving a trail. Yeah. And he's also not scared. Oh, no, he is not scared at all. Wait till you hear this. Mm. So he's finally caught and taken into custody in California. California calls Indiana and they get police sergeant Walter Cornett, who had been working on the case. California officials put him on the phone with Cornett. And this is how that conversation goes. (laughs) Cornett says, is this less? He says, yeah. (laughs) Cornett says, what are you doing out there? Irvin says, I like the weather. Have you been worried? <laughs> Cornette says, yes. Irvin says, well, you'll feel better now that I'm in. And just laughs and what laughs. The heck, man? Uh, <laughs> this is so weird. He is. This is the bonkers. Yeah. It, it's like it's a movie. Like it just feels like a movie. I know. Everything is just so dramatic. Yeah. So he's obviously taken back to Indiana. Irvin would write himself, write an article in The Courier about his escape. (laughs) I read this article. It's brilliant. I'll link it on. (laughs) Yes, please link it. Screenshot it. You can take really good snips from uh, newspapers.com. Yeah. Saying that I had always planned on returning. Just once I was granted a new trial, I was just... I just thought it wasn't fair, and mm. I wanted a new trial, and that's all this was about. Needed some sunlight. I wanted to go to Disneyland, you know, whatever. Yeah, he just, he liked the weather. Mm. What can you say? I mean, it's irresistible weather, so. <sighs> he says, quote, I took off from the jail in the spur of the moment. Mm. I made up my mind that day to take off, and I did. <laughs> I hoped I wouldn't get caught naturally. Naturally. It's like I told my old lawyers. I wrote and told them the day I escaped jail that I would come back when they gave me a new trial. Hmm. <laughs> in a different universe, he's delightful. <laughs> like, if I'm watching him in a movie, he's hilarious and delightful. Obviously, mm-hmm. he's a real-life monster. He's a real-life monster. But it does, like, you know, in a way, it kind of reminds you, like, how easy it is to be entertained by monstrosity. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if this was fiction, he'd be like a cool, good looking anti-hero. You know what I mean? Oh, we would love him. He has mm-hmm. so many like Joker tinges yeah. to him, right? Yeah, totally. Totally. And it's actually, it's really interesting. So they went back and interviewed like a bunch of the people that he had like stayed with on the road or that he had hitchhiked with. Mm. Without fail, every single one of them said that he was the nicest guy they had ever met. Mm. They're like, oh, he was funny. He was charming. I loved having him in my car. You know, a couple days later, I realized my wallet was missing. It couldn't have been him. <laughs> no, because he was such a cool guy. He was so nice to talk to. Mm-hmm. Don't trust charming people. Mm. Just don't. Yeah. So he's taken back to jail. 
He's incarcerated. He is granted several appeals, obviously. There's mm-hmm. like a whole list of appeals on his case. And it would go on for years. His date with the electric chair was pushed back at least five times. Mm. Now, initially, a lot of his appeals were denied, basically on the fact that he didn't follow proper procedure in, like, literally anything. (laughs) With literally anything. Obviously, when you get an appeal, you have to file it with this court, and then that has to deny it, and then the Mm -hmm. higher court, and then that has to deny it. Um, In each one, he claimed that his Sixth Amendment rights were violated because he never was granted an impartial and fair jury because of the extensive pretrial publicity. Mm. Which, I have to say, was true. Yeah, it's a fair assessment. It's a fair assessment by a monster. Yeah, yeah, it is. And that's the, that's definitely a big hold two things for sure. Mm -hmm. But it also, like, there's also kind of a, what were you thinking, you know, that I have to think about the court that tried him? Like, what do you think you're going to get moving at one county over in an entire region that's terrified? Like... You could go, you know, um, Evansville is a good parallel to South Bend up here. Mm -hmm. Very similar population. Totally other end of the state, you know. So people in South Bend, I doubt, would have known or particularly cared by and large about this case. Move the trial to somewhere like that. You're still in state, you know. But you've got the Mm -hmm. same demographics. You've got all these other commonalities, the same population size, that sort of thing. It actually would get moved not too far from you. Really? Yeah. So, but not until it got all the way up to the Supreme Court. Oh, wow. Like, we're talking SCOTUS took on this case. Dang. So, in 1961, his appeals finally reached the United States Supreme Court. If you want to read about it, the court case is Irvin v. Dowd. Mm. Essentially filed that because he was denied a, that second change of venue, the entire case had to be thrown out. Mm. They cited another Indiana case, Gannon v. Porter, which held that when it does not appear that the first change of venue will, be, will provide a fair trial entitled to each defendant by the U.S. Constitution, a second change of venue is required. So again, those are constitutional rights that each and every one of us is granted. Yeah, entitled to. And... People would be like, well, he's a monster, so we shouldn't have to worry about him. But if you deny it to one person, that's a slip. That's a slippery slope to denying it to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So even monsters have to go through the proper channels to get convicted. And we should have it that way, right? Yeah, totally. Totally. So the opposing counsel would obviously fight this and say the change of venue wasn't required because it wasn't agreed on by both parties. The prosecution didn't think that it needed to be moved again. The Supreme Court did not buy this for a fucking second. Hmm. Even the Supreme Court said, no, you don't have to have a unanimous agreement to have a change of venue. And I'm going to read a quote from the decision on that case. Mm. Yeah, because I'm a nerd and I nerded out on this case. Let me have it. Right. With his life at stake, it is not requiring too much that petitioner be tried in an atmosphere undisturbed by a huge wave of public passion and by a jury other than the one in which two-thirds of the members admit before hearing any testimony to possessing a belief in his guilt. Now, so that was their ruling on the change of venue. Mm. Now, what this also came into play was, did they have to find 12 completely, 12 jurors who had no knowledge of the case whatsoever? Mm. Because in some cases, that is completely just unrealistic, right? Yeah, right. You're not going to do that. 
So to that they said, to hold that the mere existence of any preconceived notion as to the guilt or innocence of an accused without more is sufficient to rebut the presumption of a prospective juror's impartiality would be to establish an impossible standard. Mm -hmm. It is sufficient if the juror can lay aside his impression or opinion and render a verdict based on the evidence presented in court. But again, that wasn't granted in Irvin's original case. Mm -hmm. They said, no, we already think he's guilty. We'll just sit here and listen to him for a couple of days. Right, right. So the unanimous decision of SCOTUS is that Irvin's murder conviction is overturned. Whoa. So this is, I believe, the only serial killer to ever have his entire case and conviction overturned by the Supreme Court. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. So Hmm. he's innocent now. (laughs) So then what happens? (laughs) Uh, So just kidding. I'm not going to leave you totally hanging like that. Thank (laughs) you. And now he's innocent. Okay, bye. See you next week. Okay, bye. See you next week. (laughs) So Leslie Irvin did nothing and totally fine. Cool, right? No. Right. Totes, totes, totes. No. The, well, the guilty verdict in the original trial was overturned, and they nearly fucked up this entire case and put a killer back on the street. Mm. He was granted an entirely new trial. Okay, there you go. So in June of 1962, the second trial of Leslie Irvin and the murder of Wesley Kerr is underway. Mm. By this time, Irvin is 38 years old, and we move the trial to Sullivan County, Indiana, about 85 miles from Evansville, ah, not too okay. far from Terre Haute, Indiana. Ah, okay. Which, I don't know. Are we just trying to set the scene in Terre Haute? We always are. It always comes down to Terre Haute. There's about 100 people in the courtroom, so much less fanfare. And this time, uh, no hooting and hollering, no dog chains. There's a lot better defense here because a lot more information was allowed. Mm. The defense team argued that ballistics could not prove that the gun found in the marshes was actually the one used. They could only agree that it was a 38. Mm. And that without the coerced confession, all all other evidence was circumstantial. Hmm. But now that the confession was properly introduced into evidence, it was actually fair game again, right? Mm. Yeah, sure. And we also know that police are allowed to lie to you. That is true. They are allowed to say, hey, buddy, you know, we can get you a deal if you just confess. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Well. <laughs> well. Well. Legally, it's okay. Yeah. So the confession is back in evidence. He still had Kerr's wallet on him. His car matched the description. There was enough evidence to convict him on the second trial. Mm. I mean, I would imagine so. Mm-hmm. So June 13th, 1962, a jury of seven men and five women, this time deliberated for nearly six hours. That seems more appropriate. That seems more appropriate. I imagine the original 90 minutes, they were mostly just like chilling anyway. Like mm-hmm. there was no deliberation going on. Right. Just kind of hung out until they were like, well, I guess it's been like an hour and a half. We can go back like, in there, right? To, we have to look like we're talking about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So, as the jury stood and read the verdict, Irvin stood and smiled broadly as they read, guilty, with a recommendation for life in prison. Hmm. Irvin calmly walked away with the prison guards and returned to his jail cell. He was transferred to Indiana State Prison, where he was reportedly a model prisoner, clean, respectful, friendly, Hmm. for the next 21 years until he died of lung cancer in 1983. Wow. 
No more escapes. No more nothing. He got convicted on his own terms. That is so interesting. And apparently that's all he needed. Yeah. I mean, he was obviously guilty the whole time and he knew he oh, was guilty. Yeah. We knew he was guilty. He knew he was guilty. It's this weird, twisted sense of ethics. Like, if you're going to put me away for something I did, do it the right way. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like he doesn't, he doesn't have an issue with being put away for what he did. He has an issue for how it's done. Yeah. That's Which, again, it's, it's just that creepy, weird sense of ethics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, that's like, I don't know. I didn't buy the robbery thing as time went on, especially when it came to the farm, you know, like it just didn't, it stopped making sense. When it started entering homes, it stopped, that stopped making sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. When it's finally like, you got what, five bucks out of this? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. And obviously he's smart enough to divert attention effectively, Mm -hmm. you know? So that's Mm -hmm. where my head goes with that. So yeah, I mean, he almost sounds like kind of a weird, like Dexter-ish, like he's got his own like moral code that he's following, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And you kind of wonder what all it may have entailed. I wish we had more on who this person was. Mm-hmm. Because, I don't know, we always talk about narcissism with with criminals, but I feel like it's something different with him. Yeah, it's like narcissism plus something else. Like It's like it just has to happen on his terms, yeah. and then he's fine with it. Yeah, there's but, like an obstinance to it. There's like, it's a very like black and white like moralistic kind of way of moving through the world he's almost like a fundamentalist serial killer like (laughs) this is how i must go down uh do you want to know about his personality and what people would say about him i do so we don't have much as we often don't with kind of older cases Mm -hmm. about you know who this person was and what were they like you know, going back to Evansville, Indiana, and the people that grew up with him, people would say, oh, he was always a sensitive kid. Mm. He would always get really upset. He would be kind of tearful and cry when teachers punished him. He got kind of bullied because he thinks he got bullied because Leslie was a girl's name. Mm. Not that it has anything to do with anything, but I love the name Leslie on men. I do, too. So he would beg classmates to call him Les or Bud. Mm-hmm. People said he would cry to himself for no discernible reason. Hmm. Psychologists who would later interview him would talk about, remember, this is like the 50s and the 60s, that he had a low sex drive and a strong need for validation. Hmm. Well, like, does that have anything to do with anything? I don't know. Yeah, I the mean, sec- for the, the other anecdotes make him sound like he's just got like a high but really delicate ego. Mm-hmm. Kind of like yeah. gifted kid burnout times a billion. Oof. Yeah. Which I understand. Not the times a billion mm. part, but the first part I do. Gifted kid burnout. Uh-huh. Girl, it is real. And it's raging now, let me tell you. Uh, he would like talk himself up. In high school, he started setting fires. Hmm. Just fire setting fires. Yeah. None of them did much damage. Mm. But when he would get caught and people would ask him why, he was just, he would just be like, uh Like, literally just shrug. Mm. At some point, he told somebody, he's like, I guess I was just looking for excitement. Interesting. Um. So people would be like, he's weird. He gets set off at weird points. Mm -hmm. He seems to be kind of, again, there's like this superficial charm. Yeah. But then there's also this, it seems like there's a lot of sensation seeking, like mm. in under arousal. Mm-hmm. And then he's looking for something to 
like setting the fires like that's mm-hmm. you're looking for some kind of excitement Stimulation. you're looking for something mm-hmm. right but nobody ever suspected that he would go on to do this there was one story where a meter reader like a gas meter reader stopped at his home he was living with his mom at the time because mm. remember he had just gotten out of jail for the burglaries right right which he committed very young yeah mm-hmm. so a meter reader stopped and was just like chatting up his mom while they were doing the meter reading and was like oh you know are you okay like are you worried about all these like murders and whatnot happening in his town and his mom's like oh yeah like i'm locking the door from now on i've never done that before and mm-hmm. urban was just like sitting at the table smiling to himself <laughs> just like happy as a clam interesting so yeah hmm. i read him as just kind of very sensitive and very fragile kind yeah. of sensation seeker that's interesting i was just yeah. looking up his uh his birthday so that i could get a <laughs> an astrological vibe give us a vibe on him i think he is somebody who desperately needed control over a situation mm-hmm. and like that's that like well you give me a new trial and then i'll accept it right well, so I saw his birthday is April 2nd, so he's definitely an Aries sun. I want to know what his moon is, if I can f- figure. Uh, what was his birth year? 24, 1924. So, you know, Aries, it's an interesting sign. If you think about the, um, well, <laughs> think about the zodiac as like the wheel of the year, which is kind of how it originally started aries is of the year well aries is the youngest sign it's the first sign in the zodiac so the zodiac doesn't start in january it starts in april Mm -hmm. it starts in spring so um late march not not, oh not solstice equinox yeah in bulk so it's the youngest sign it's when i say it's the least mature sign it doesn't mean that it's the like that people that are aries are immature it just means that aries is tends to have the least follow-through out of all the signs. Mm-hmm. So um, at the at their best, they're like really great, like self-starters. They're enthusiastic. They, they get the crowd going. They charge ahead full forward. They've got lots of ideas. They're creative people. Often like they're kind of like that quick to anger, quick to cool. Like everything is just fast for the mm-hmm. Aries. Their problem often lies in follow through. So the Aries struggles with follow through a lot of the time. Like they're the people that are going to start your project, but they're not the people that are going to finish it out. But they are definitely known for sensation seeking. Mm-hmm. He is definitely a sensation seeker. Uh-huh. Yeah. But the moon's in Pisces. And that's interesting too. So the moon is your emotional life. Like the sun, that's like kind of your core. I think of it as like your core motivations, your kind of core self. So the Aries core is kind of to start. It's this like dynamism. Well, the moon is all about your emotional life. So the moon in Pisces uh, speaks to like a huge degree of sensitivity. Um, They're very, like at their best, they're very emotionally intelligent. At their worst, they're extremely insecure. So I wonder if that combination of like the you know, quick start of the Aries plus the dark side of Pisces, which is that deep-seated insecurity kind of works together to kind of create this wheel of like constant sensation seeking and and validation seeking. Mm -hmm. So that's my, uh, (laughs) that's my astrology corner for today. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. I would definitely say he is somebody with a weak ego Mm -hmm. that it's very much kind of like a, 
What are those really fancy eggs? Like Fabergé eggs? Yeah. Okay. He's like a little Fabergé egg. Mm. Like he cleans up very nice and he can be very pretty, but he's incredibly fragile. Mm-hmm. And when that gets cracked, he escapes. He mm. flees. He runs away. Yeah. But he's constantly looking for some kind of excitement. I think he's under arousal. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing most likely he's a very under aroused person. So there's this theory in forensic psychology that they've done a number of studies on of people that that are higher on psychopathic traits that when you give them kind of like something that would give a normal person kind of like a, a higher that would heighten our heart rate heighten our galvanic skin response mm-hmm. so like a really scary movie or really graphic scary imagery um you know having to escape a fire that they have a much lower response to that mm. And in some ways, that can be very adaptive. Like, those people tend to make very good first responders, Mm -hmm. like, in the best case scenario. But when they don't have a way to channel that, then they start doing this thing, like, setting fires, like, Mm. robbing robbing stores and things like that, because they're chasing a response that normally we can get from watching a scary movie or going on a roller coaster. Yeah. Exactly. Mm Mm-hmm. He really very much strikes me as that type of person. Gotcha. Which syncs up very well with my astrological reading, I would say. Well, there you go. Yes. The A-team is back at it. Yes. Yeah, I would think so, too. That's really interesting. Good work, Mm -hmm. my friend. That was cool. Well, well, thank you. That was (laughs) a little bit of a change. We've we've done some heavy ones, so I needed something a little bit, you know. Cerebral. Mm -hmm. A little cerebral, a little bit like a noir movie. Yes. Yes, yes, (laughs) and I love it. I loved it. Thank you. Thank you. What you bringing for us next week? Next week is going to be, what's the word I want for this? Funky, I would say. We're going to be back in Michigan. Uh, We're going to a case that's relatively recent, uh, the last seven years or so. At the core of this case is a very, very sad murder and the loss of a very well-loved man. Um, surrounding this case, we've got psychics, we've got potentially like scorned lovers, we've got animal witnesses in the courtroom, we've got it all, my friends, so please come back for that. Catch us, Nancy Grace. Yes. Come at me. Come at me. The only thing I got for Nancy Grace to catch is these hands. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Square up, Nancy. Yeah, so come back for that, you guys. Come back for that. Keep following us. Again, we love you guys. We love the feedback. We love everything. I will say, Facebook group people, be nice. Seriously. Oh, are they? Are are we being mean? I guess I did see a couple of snips. I saw a couple of snips. We don't like it. Do not attack people. Mm -mm. Not cool. Yep. We are Midwesterners. We have a reputation. Yeah, I mean, we tell you all every week to be nice. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. But we do thank you for listening and we thank you for supporting us and for helping us to kind of hit the next echelon in our, yeah. And we love every single listener. Every single last one of you. A little piece of our hearts. All right, y'all. Yes. Follow us on the socials at MidWretched and keep talking to us. We enjoy it. We really do. It makes our day. Yeah. Yay. Gives us a reason to wake up in the morning. Tomorrow is the first day of school, so please, um, you know. Yeah, I mean, everyone will hear this two weeks from now, but please 
pray for me, vibe for me. <laughs> However you connect with the divine, do so for me as I go into a middle school. For I have no divine, school. but I'm still going to send out whatever vibes I can. Thank you. Thank you. Um, third, cor- third COVID school year. Mm-hmm. I'm sending out calming alpha waves to you. Oh, I love the alpha waves. Thank you. Okay. All right, you All guys. Right. Be nice. And eat cheese. And we love you. We love you. Yay. Bye, guys. I like that I actually wave like they can see me. But yeah. I know. I can't help myself. Me neither. It adds to the ambiance. like this is a new low like this is <laughs> like, like, like I, I don't like what <laughs> how did I get here how did I get here like uh, this what is not series my beautiful of events life. yeah exactly <laughs> like what series of events have brought me to this moment where... oh my gosh